I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon, and today... We have a special guest. In fact, I would say we have a guest for the times. As we all navigate this thing called COVID, whether it's an athlete, an individual, a leader, or a business, we've been going through and navigating several phases, as you might call it. The change, the desperate plan to adjust and stabilize. Maybe then a little bit of an adjustment and innovation before many people falling into some frustration. And now, what you might call the new normal. It is only now that as individuals or athletes or leaders or business people, we can really start to look forward. And one of three things are going to happen. Some are going to regress. Some are just gonna tread water and survive this thing. And others, just maybe, are going to emerge stronger. Today, that's the subject du jour. And we're taking it with a discussion with Carmel Galvin. Carmel is the CHRO of Autodesk. She's actually been on the show before, and we've discussed her relationship with fitness, resilience, and how that plays into life. But today, we're going to go a step further. We're going to do a deep dive into Autodesk and explain how they've taken the approach of empathy, of looking after the employees and their customers, but ultimately look forward so that they can emerge from this crisis and situation stronger than ever before. And I think you'll find there are a massive amount of lessons. I always say that the lessons go two ways, between business to athletics, from athletics to business. And today, we're gonna unpack that with Carmel. It's an incredibly interesting conversation. I think you're gonna absolutely love it. We're gonna skip word of the week. We're gonna skip the squatty update. We are gonna get right into the meat and potatoes. And next week, we're gonna follow up. We're gonna continue with this theme but it's just going to be me, myself, and I. And we're going to unpack this bottom of the dip and now emerging stronger. It's going to be a call to action over these two weeks at Purple Patch. But without further ado, I hope that you love this conversation with Carmel. I think you're going to find it interesting. And I want to say up front, beyond being a great friend, Carmel, you are smart, you are thoughtful, and thank you so much for appearing on the show. We really appreciate it. And I give you Carmel Galvin. All right, guys, it is the meat and potatoes. And this week we have a self-declared very special guest. It's a very good friend of mine, a longtime Purple Patch athlete, and is currently the CHRO of Autodesk, and we're going to get into Autodesk later. Carmel Galvin, thank you very much for joining. You're welcome. Happy to be here. You are one of the very, very, very few returnee guests on the Purple Patch podcast. It's, uh, and I, I would say that you begged your way in, but in fact, I was on my on my knees asking you to come and join because of where we find ourselves as a as a society now 
And uh, our focus of today's conversation is going to anchor mostly around your role at Autodesk and how Autodesk is navigating COVID-19 as a, as a business and organization. And that might sound a bit stale in a way or sterile. It's just like, oh, it's just another business navigating. But I think the lessons we're going to get to for individuals, for leaders, for athletes, for businesses are hopefully going to be golden. But before we get into the conversation, I just want to ground our listeners on a little bit of our, our mindset. And uh, we've known each other for a very long time. Why don't we start? Why don't you just give us a couple of minutes of of your background so that we get to know you a little bit, your family, where you're from with your dodgy accent and stuff like that? Um, yes. So I am originally from Ireland and I have been here in the Bay Area, San Francisco for the last 25 years. Um, I moved here right after college with uh, my husband, Peter, and we have three daughters who are now all teenagers, so at 18, 16, and 14, which makes for a very interesting home life, particularly now when we're all cooped up. Um, and then we have one other family member, very important, Mr. George Best, our corgi, um, who you obviously love and know well. Very well, um, yeah. Um, and yeah, so... Uh, Growing up in the or spending time here in the Bay Area with all of the great opportunities to do a lot of outdoor activity, very central to how we run as a family and uh, love it. Very happy to to live here. And when uh, I, I, I label you as a purple patch athlete, people uh, automatically jump to you know, big triathlete, obsessive triathlete, whatever it might be. Why don't you give you in your own words, your uh, a, a brief synopsis, first of your background in sports globally, when you first got into sports and then what sports mean to you now in many ways. Yeah. So I don't think of myself as an athlete in the true definition of the word. However, I am, am and always have been very physically active. So I did run at school in cross country and played field hockey, but pretty much put that aside when I went to college and came over here and flirted with what I considered exercise um, for a long time. When I had my third daughter, um, Zoe, was when I started to realize actually I needed to tap back into that part of myself um, because I did derive a lot of fun and enjoyment out of you know, physical activity. And so I started to cycle. In fact, I took the cycling class that was the predecessor to Purple Patch um, and discovered that it was something I like to do and have been riding my bike for a long time. Zoe's 14 now, so that's something I've been doing for that long and um, continue to run. And as I think you know, I never swam, but started to do that more recently um, and have gotten into that too. So I do a combination of a lot of different things, none of them in a performance capacity, but very much as something that fuels my everyday life. So it's a, it is a critical part of who I am now. Well, I'm going I'm to latch onto that word performance because I, I, I would argue performance within context. So um, let me let me take a leap while you I don't identify as being a quote athlete. You have long been a believer that it's critical for people to perform, to have a real platform of 
physical health and resilience in order to thrive. So I'd, I'd love your thoughts on why you feel, perhaps an obvious question, but why you feel health and resilience is so important for, for performance across life. Yeah, so good question. I think um, there's a couple of reasons why it's become a very central part of my life. Um, one is the most fundamental one, which is just simply it fuels my physical health um, and well-being and so allows me to by putting a focus on exercise and sport it's actually helped me develop good habits around sleep nutrition and just gaining that mental clarity that having exercise in your day gives you and fuels your energy and generally makes me more resilient and strong in my everyday life and i literally couldn't imagine any day without doing something because it, it's it's a central part of how I show up every day, not just at work, but at home. Um, and I miss it if I do miss a day, I notice it in myself. So on that level, but then probably more recently, the thing that has struck me the most is that there are just enormous parallels between the practices that you have to engage in when you're doing physical activity and how that translates to other aspects of your life. And particularly in my job, where I spend a lot of time helping people perform at the company so that we're contributing to the overall success. There's just so many interesting parallels and the different habits and how those map over into becoming a more effective employee or leader or whatever it is that you spend your day doing. And I think we're going to unpack it with a particular story of yours around swimming. But I, before we get to that, that story, it, it's an interesting time that we talk about this because we're we are all individually um, athletes, businesses, leaders, and navigating this thing, COVID nineteen, and it's quite interesting an observation that many during this crisis, if you want to call it that, many find it really tough to retain space for what I would label positive habits that support resilience, such as fitness and health or sleep and, and good eating habits. So what are your thoughts on the importance of these habits during this time? Yeah. I mean, it's back to what I said earlier, really. It's about how, um, all those habits can fuel how you show up every day and remembering that they have to be the cornerstone of your general daily practices. I think you, you probably now during this time, more than any other time, it's critical to go back to those basics and remind yourself that they serve you well every day. So getting good sleep, getting um, a routine, having good sort of habits around taking breaks and making sure you're, you know, getting some fresh air and getting outside and so on can actually help you probably navigate this situation better than any other technique that I've heard mentioned. It's kind of funny. We talk a lot at Autodesk because we're all working from home across the globe and we have um, what we're referring to as Zoomitis. Um, everyone's looking at the screen all day long and it strikes me that it's probably just imperative for people to engage in some of those basic habits that we knew before this were helpful but they're now even more critical than they've ever been yeah it's, and it's it's interesting when you have from my lens when i have athletes that we obviously support and help and the immediate reaction for many which is probably the same for employees and leaders as well if oh, I've, this is happening, I'm going to turn my back on exactly the thing that's sort of the tent peg that holds everything together. 
And in an athlete lens, it's, I haven't got any events. So it's a good time just to go completely random and really busy employees. Well, I've got a whole bunch of stuff on, so I'm just going to go random or stop exercising. It's probably exactly the wrong time. In fact, that's the time to double down on structure, to double down on, I say this as a coach, but double down on coaching in many ways. Yeah. And and it's funny because I've talked to some of my team about um, all of the things that we did before this situation, like people who train for events. In some ways, those have been things that you did that helped you practice to deal with something like this. They, you know, this is just another challenge in some ways and, and, and anything that has been challenging for you in the past, you've learned coping skills, you've learned different techniques, different mechanisms to, to, to handle those. And that's where you should tap into that toolbox right now, because actually this is an adverse challenge that is, is something that you can break down like any other situation you've been in and start to, to tackle it in that way so not forgetting that you do actually have the tools to, to, to cope with it yeah the the journey of for the athlete population the journey of getting ready for an event provides and going through events provides the tools to help you here so so it's exactly the wrong time to turn your back on those lessons and yeah. tools um i i want to ask a, a personal journey story for you, because I think you have a really empowering story around swimming. You mentioned uh, swimming. So when I, well, it was some years after I'd met you, but a long time ago, in fact, many years ago, I think it was in the 2009 Hawaii Ironman uh, when Chris Lieto was second, purple patch athlete, and you were there. The, an auspicious occasion. An auspicious occasion. But I remember being on the beach and you would you would stand right at the back of the beach, basically absolutely fearful of going towards water's edge. You were that terrified of the water. And yeah. and now, all these years later, you swim, when the pools are open, you swim three times a week, uh, two, three, four thousand uh, meters, uh, each of those swim sessions within the group environment and have done half Ironman races, et cetera, et cetera. So tell me a little bit about your your journey into swimming, but most importantly, what lessons you've extracted from it? Yeah, so you're, you're right. Uh, I honestly believed that I would never, ever swim in my life. Um, it was something that I just was had I already expressed I had no interest in, but truthfully, it was because I was terrified of it. So I decided to put it away and something I just wouldn't do. And then you have kids and you realize that which for me was a, a turning point because watching them swim and it, it means you don't get to share experiences with your kids. Anything that you're fearful of, if you refuse to sort of embrace it, you, you miss out. So it occurred to me one day watching them learning to swim that um, similar to the times when I've been in Kona with you all and watching everybody else head out into the water and you're standing there, you miss out. And so I was determined to overcome that. So it started from a place of absolute fear and I decided to make it a project and something that I wasn't going to let defeat me. And so I did probably not as in, in retrospect, I can see how I did it, but at the time I was not necessarily conscious of it being as, um, as well structured a project as perhaps it looks like when you look back on it. But I did set the goal was to 
learn how to swim. And I had no aspirations beyond just being able to go up and down a pool twice. I had this idea that if I could just do that, it would be cool. And I couldn't put my face in the water. Um, I really couldn't. I was utterly terrified of that. And so I did what um, I decided was the best thing to do was go get somebody to teach me the mechanics of swimming. And I watched my daughters learning how to blow bubbles in their swim class. And so I tried that. <laughs> and everyone laughs about that right now, that it didn't even occur to me um, that that's how you manage to put your face in the water. And I think for most people who swam for an early age, they don't have to learn the specific mechanics of swimming. But if you do something older, you actually literally have to break it down into instructions, which is what I did. So anyway, I learned that and I truthfully ended up walking half the length of the pool and then swimming the second half and built it up over and over from there to the point where now I am with you in, in the, the Purple Patch group three times a week swimming yardage that I never even dreamed of. Um, and now I'm at the point where I'm desperate to get back to the pool. I'm really um, missing it during this time when the pool is shut. But the lessons I, I learned as I was um, building from nothing all the way to where I am now was I didn't have a long-term sort of, I wanted to swim two or 3,000 yards. I broke it down into very small parts. I stayed in the moment. I did it week by week. I dipped into an incredible deep reservoir of patience um, and just being very patient with myself and listening and trying to apply the specific techniques over and over and over again. Um, and not letting the small setbacks, because there were plenty of days where I'd get in the pool and freak out when I'd get halfway down or something would happen to not make me feel comfortable and just getting back in and doing it again and again and again. So breaking it down into its small parts and, um, and then each day trying to push just a little bit further than the previous day. Um, and staying optimistic about it. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I think that's something that has served me well as a leader um, on many occasions, because I'm able to tap into that story for myself. I understand it gives me empathy for other people who have fear around whatever their particular situation is. Um, but I know that if you, you can conquer anything if you break it down into its component parts and just being going with the process of being patient, um, having somebody hold you accountable to that as well. That was very important. Um, as you know, that's yeah. something I relied heavily on you, but also then there's the group environment and feeling some sense of responsibility to, to the larger group just to show up. Um, yeah, yeah that, that team-wise, I think for you, you it, early in the stages, uh, that the, there was this... Um, rough destination of being able to swim yeah but that that's almost insurmountable on the first day that you do it and you're blowing bubbles in the pool and that that's that that's not a stage of the journey where the group becomes powerful but once you've crossed over the bridge and you're able to go up and down i think that's where accountability and group really becomes really critical yeah and yeah. Um, I, I was listening to a, a a very interesting conversation with a with a guy who was a professional rugby player that had broken his neck, and he's now climbing up mountains and he's got a brace and he is a, a British guy and uh, incredible story. But he was saying 
the destination, he was told he would, could never walk again. And the destination for him to think about walking was absolutely impossible. All he wanted to do was have independence. So the, the big victory for him was being able to wiggle his toe or wiggle his finger. And those were the celebratory things. And that was all the focus was. So it was all about perspective for him and his journey. And in many ways that becomes so critical of, um, of not looking too far into the future. Yeah. It's, um, and I think that that, that must really, you must come back to that story quite a lot as a, as a leader in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, so the, the couple of interesting things, or at least um, I think they are from from that story. One is that sw- fear of swimming is actually not an uncommon um, thing. So lots of people latch on to that story because they're compelled to to think. And, and even people who think they can swim, but they don't put their face in the water, for example. It's putting your face in the water that seems to be the universal uh theme. So it's something that helps me start a conversation with a lot of people who believe that they are not athletes, that they're not somebody who could do those sorts of things. And it's difficult for them to listen to that story and not feel, oh, okay, well, maybe I can. And so it's, in some ways, it just helps empower people to believing, into believing that they, anything's possible. If you, mm-hmm. if you can imagine something like that. So that's the first place it really helps me. It helps me engage people in believing what's possible for them. And then I think generally just some of those core lessons that you start to realize when you break things down, when you start to build skill over time, the patience that you need, the, the persistence, um, leveraging the larger community and just generally holding yourself accountable to the smaller things every day, not the big goal necessarily right at the outset. Although you do need those, you need to map it out over time and still keep continually giving yourself something to reach for. Um, and that applies to almost everything all of us do. So I find myself leveraging that story all the time um, with the people I work with and, and with other audiences that I talk to. Um, I think it's a good one for people. It really is. It's uh, in an athletic sense. It's the the athlete journey. We always think about it. The, yeah. There is a anything is impossible. Anything is possible is a tagline of a very well known endurance company, by the way. <laughs> let, let's uh, let, let's transition that with a little grounding uh, because I think that provides us with a a really nice grounding of who you are. The some of the journey of being through the importance of resilience and health the meat and potatoes of this conversation, the meat and potatoes of the Purple Patch podcast, is actually going to be anchored in Autodesk and navigating the scenario that we're in right now. First, before we get into what you guys are doing uh, under your leadership and, and others on the executive team, but many people will have heard of Autodesk, but I think less will actually really appreciate the fingerprints that Autodesk leaves on the world. So, so why don't you provide listeners with a little bit of an overview of what you do as a company? Yeah. So Autodesk is an incredibly interesting company and, and touches um, almost everything that people use every day in the world. So we're, we build software for people who make things. So whether that's cars, buildings, bridges, roads, movies, Um, to your iPhone, whatever it is that you use every day, the chances are that most of those products have been created, designed, and made using Autodesk software. So we joke 
every year. We win an Oscar every year because almost every movie that's made uses Autodesk software for its visual effects. But every major structure in the world, all you know, the various bridges, the the buildings that you enter every day, they're all developed and, and built using our software. So our tagline is make anything. And that's what the company's about. So it's a software company headquartered here in San Francisco, but we have about 100 plus 120 offices globally in over 50 countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have just shy of 11,000 employees. And we believe that through our customers, as a company, we make an incredibly large impact on the world because we enable them to, to create things that just are in everyday use globally. And your role in the company, when people hear CHRO, head of, head of HR, hiring and firing, in it? Uh, <laughs> but provide some, because I think this is particularly relevant to today's conversation. So what's your role at Autodesk? Yeah, so officially I'm the chief HR officer for Autodesk and my sort of working title is I'm the head of people and places. So what does that actually mean? So contrary to popular opinion, I don't spend all my days hiring and firing a new one. Um, so I, I, def- I oversee all the functions that are typical in any HR function. So everything from the, the group that hires people to the employee experience, generating the employee experience at Autodesk, all the, the teams that create that for our employees do report up into me. But then I have a bunch of other functions that are particularly relevant right now. So I'm in charge of all of the corporate real estate facilities and operations of our offices worldwide, the team that runs our environmental health and safety group. Um, and that's relevant in Autodesk because we have a number of tech spaces where we have robots and 3D printers and so on, where there's actually really big cutting machines, et cetera. So there's, there's work that's been done that's potentially quite dangerous. And so we have lots of different safety protocols around those. Um, this travel um, team for all of the employee travel globally reports up into me. So every employee who moves anywhere on the planet um, does it through our team. All the physical security functions, so and the well-being of our employees globally, um, and then major events. So as we run, uh, like all of our big conferences, our customer conferences, our sales conferences, all those are are um, planned through my team. So, so yeah. basically, as, as I just heard that, is that all of the functions that Autodesk does that are directly impacted by this situation. <laughs> That's what I just heard there. Yes. Well, so it's interesting because um, we have a crisis management team um, who are, you know, most of companies our size have put in place a crisis management team. That they typically have one anyway that gets called into play whenever something happens and, and that's taken on a whole new meaning through a situation like this. But in the end, the teams that are directly dealing with the day-to-day situation, anything that has anything to do with any of our employees, those teams sit in my organization. So it's been an interesting last few months for us because that's how we've we've had to sort of think every day about how do we make sure our employees are safe and well, and then everything else that layers on top of that. And, and, and beyond Autodesk, as we, as we dive into this conversation and uh, you, 
you are traditionally humble and we're well, not say it, but you you are thought of as a little bit of a I'm not sure of the phrase, but maybe a thought leader in the space of areas like corporate culture and developing change in, in culture amongst major organizations. Like you've done a lot of work for various other companies in exactly this this sort of uh, arena, yeah? Yeah, and in fact, um, that's why I was hired at Autodesk to begin with, was because the, the company has been on a... Uh, a sort of transformation and a digital transformation, so shifting our business model. And one of the things that the CEO, my boss, wanted to do was bring the company on a culture journey to so transform the culture to better support the business as it navigates, you know, delivering products through the cloud, um, shifting the business model to an almost 100% subscription-based model, um, and so helping the employees become evolved to support that mission better is all part of the culture journey we've been on. And so I've been using a lot of the, the skills that I've built up over the years to help the company navigate that transition. Ironically, that has probably been the single anchor point for us as we tackled this situation. We realized that that culture journey has in fact prepared us to tackle this crisis in a much stronger and more resilient way than we might have done had we not embarked on that culture journey for all sorts of reasons. But, well, yeah. that, that, so, so let, let's dive into it because as a truly a global company and, um, you know, 130 offices all over the, the, the world, yeah. can you try and give listeners a, a small insight into the impact that this has had in the journey? <laughs> Yeah, so um, on a few different dimensions. So I can tell you just on a sort of how it all began basis. We have a pretty sizable presence in China. In, um, we have a big office in Shanghai and Beijing. And that was, of course, the first place that this virus um, took hold. And we learned pretty quickly in January when our employees were immediately um, you know, prevented from going to work. So we had to quickly start to figure out how to tackle this. Um, not at the time, honestly, realizing just how massive it was about to become. We thought we could isolate it into sort of, well, it's, it's one part of the world and we can figure out how to tackle it there. It very quickly became clear that that was just the tip of the spear. And we had a lot of um, lessons that we've learned from that particular beginning that have helped us as we've navigated across the rest of the world. But it, it moved swiftly. Um, quickly, the Italy situation, then we have a pretty big office in northern Italy that had to close. It closed. We realized that a bunch of people from that office had previous week been in our Barcelona office. Um, and so it, it was literally two weeks before um, or as quickly as two weeks when we realized we can't contain this in one office. We knew before it even became obvious to the world that just because of our employees moving between the different offices, this was global for us right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. um, we also had a number of major user events, customer events in different locations where we were bringing, you know, thousands and thousands of people together in a single location. And so we had to swiftly kick into gear to figure out how to tackle that and make sure that people were safe. And so our number one priority right from the beginning has been to focus on two constituents, employees and customers. So to make sure that our employees are safe and well and do everything we can to ensure that first, 
And then with respect to our customers to make sure they have what they need to help them navigate the crisis, because without them on the other side of this, then we're obviously in trouble. So those were our two and have been and continue to be our big focus areas. So I spend most of my time worrying about the employee side of the equation. And then there's plenty of my colleagues on the executive team who are focused on making sure that the customer piece of this is attended to. Mm. So, yeah, so it's been um, for, for interest sake, I can tell you the last six to eight weeks or so have been a daily uh, lesson in everything new. Lots of things. We are unprepared for this. We don't have a playbook. We're making it up every day as we go along. We've learned lots of things. Um, the crisis management team has been something that previously got used for two or three days at a time. It's now become sort of a permanent part of our operating model. Um, and we initially spent most of our time focused on how to stabilize the company and make sure people had what they need. We quickly moved into a working from home situation for everybody. We closed all of our offices globally and sent everybody home, which for that many people, you can imagine, we had to make sure we had the right IT support mechanisms. We developed software, so it's not like, you know, their bandwidth requirements, et cetera, is pretty significant. So there was a fairly massive mobilization of our IT infrastructure to make sure people had what they need to be effective working from home. We put in place a bunch of programs to help our employees set themselves up working from home and um, all the things. You see lots of companies have engaged around this topic and, and from the get-go, I've been uh, networking with my peers and other organizations and we've all sort of shared resources and knowledge and wisdom and, and tapped into that network to help. And that's been been great. Um, so all of our employees across the world right now, we have one office where we've had 30% uh, of our workforce return, which is in China, but everybody else is still working from home. And uh, we're, you know, every day helping them be effective I'd say the first few weeks were just about making sure people were okay. Now we're in a trying to, to create some semblance of business as usual, but at the same time recognizing that that's impossible and uh, how do you sort of manage and navigate that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we've sort of created these different phases. We're in phase two now, I would say, and uh, trying to move the conversation amongst our employees to start to look forward into phase three, which we believe will mean we're working in a way that we never imagined. So we don't anticipate ever returning to the way things were before this situation, but we do um, you know, hope that we'll get back to some form of normalcy with respect to you know, being able to access our offices and so on, but our work will for sure be impacted and change probably forever as a result of this. Well, I, I was, I was going to say, how do you plan for something like this? And the answer is there is no plan and there is no playbook. Uh, there is a whole bunch of lessons. Yeah. So I, I, I want to, I want to just break down. So you, you mentioned three phases there. So the, the first phase, if I can regurgitate was after yeah. the initial shock of it all and the change of it all was, was basically stability. Yeah. Like yeah. anchor it. And now you as, a, as an organization are in a little bit of as much as you can. And I don't think anyone has adapted yet, but adjusted to some form of normal operational yeah. normalcy. Yeah? 
in many ways, you, you just mentioned uh, uh, phase three. In many ways, perhaps the most interesting and maybe the most divergent of phases where from this, theoretically, you can grow out of it because things are not going to go just back it's not like a light switch where mm -hmm. uh, the summer's here and everything's going to go back to normal and everything changes so what does phase three look like and in asking that question what could it look like if you don't plan correctly so is there, is there a, a great phase and a not so great phase for, for you and other companies yeah um so just let me go back first to go forward on that question i think um so in the Phase one, there were sort of three things we did, which was every leader should do two things, have empathy, so help your employees just understand them, listen to them, help them figure out how to set themselves up and be flexible. So those are the two things. That's all you have to do as a leader, show up with some empathy and flexibility because nobody's planned for this. And then we focused our energy on getting the right tools and resources in their hands, whether that be equipment to work from home or programs to help those people who weren't able to work full-time because they had four kids at home or whatever it was. And then the third leg of the stool was communicating. So the communication piece of this has turned out to be probably the central uh, tool that we've used all the way through. And we've Massively moved... important, yeah. Oh my God, we have moved into a, a regular communication motion that has just been unprecedented we've never talked this much to our employees two directional as well very important that it's bi-directional um so we've been doing weekly company-wide meetings by zoom that everyone attends and they're quick and they just quick updates but they give people an opportunity to just connect in a way that you know is challenging when you're not in the room with people but truthfully as a global company we recognize that that's impossible anyway so this is just the way it works we've had leaders we've done various levels of cascading meetings with different leaders our big focus is to get people as much context and as many answers as we have but being really transparent about what we don't have which is lots of answers about all sorts of things right so we just want people to feel they can ask any question and we'll try to answer where we can or go look for something which shape the conversation so that everyone feels a level of connection through this. It helps enormously. That sense of community, ironically, becomes even more important through something like this at the very time that it's hard to create because you're all virtual. So that's sort of what we were have been doing. Now we're in the phase where we want to continue. We've realized that communications focus is actually what's going to help us through all the phases, and we don't want to dial that back. So we're doubling down on that, and that's new and awesome because it's not something that people people tended to take that for granted before. They didn't put, they weren't deliberate about it. Mm -hmm. Now we're making that we're saying the new normal in phase three. We're going to dial up communications across the board because we've learned that that is strength for us, and that has helped us create resiliency across the team. So that's something we want to continue on. There's all the usual, every company I talk to, everyone's asking, well, should we all work from home every, forever now? And the truth is, we will not be in a situation that we were before where there was lots of jobs that we said, there's no way that can be done from home. We've accepted that, who knew, but there's a whole bunch of things that we thought couldn't be done from home 
that we can actually hear from home. So we definitely plan to evolve um, our thinking around that. That being said, there's something awesome about people being in the same physical space too. So we, we are thinking about how to redesign and re-look at how we organize our workspaces and our real estate footprint to reflect this new phase and think about how do we allow people perhaps a, a balanced approach to, you know, or a more flexible approach around how and where they work and making sure that we support them by creating the right infrastructure for them to do that and it will serve us well so a blend of both there will be no more absolutes that's probably the biggest lesson we've we've learned that there are all the things that you thought were impossible have suddenly become a lot more possible than you imagined um which by the way is an interesting connection back to my swimming story um and then the other thing that we have learned is that um we are a whole lot more capable than we ever thought we were about um, things like adaptability and moving much more quickly. So projects that we had planned for six months suddenly got done in two weeks because we had to. So there's something about the necessity of a moment like this that creates momentum amongst the team. And so collaboration has become much more efficient across teams. People are very motivated to um, get things done to make sure our customers are protected on the other side. And we've, that has shown up in, in spades across the board here. So we, we've been somewhat surprised at how easy some of the things that we felt were very difficult to achieve as a company have become as a result of this crisis. So I think I've said to you before, nothing, HR people love a good crisis because nothing creates change or helps you navigate change as, as much as a forcing function like a crisis. But the critical thing is you've got to see it and use it wisely instead of um, being frightened of it. So, Because in this context, and there's, there's three things I want to hone in on there uh, within this context, but people across many disciplines have achieved amazing things in a really short, I mean, we're talking about a window of six to eight weeks of where this has happened sort of globally, that at least on a global scale. And um, what many individuals and companies have done in that time frame is, is unprecedented. It's unbelievable. It's like a mobilization. Right. And that, that stress, that challenge, it's, it can be, a positive within all of this negative situation it's a growth opportunity so often yeah there's a realization yeah. there's a there's a razor sharpening of focus and action in many ways that can be quite revealing in many ways would you agree with that totally totally you, things you didn't know you were capable of i think you're capable of the, the second thing that you mentioned a word earlier which is used a lot and rightfully used a lot which is empathy I'll ask you a question, and I'm, I'm asking this from a coach's lens, because I think to be an effective coach, you must have a, an ability to be empathetic. It's, it's a really important ongoing. And, uh, and of course, very early in the, this situation, empathy was really important, the, probably the most important, and it continues and will continue to be important. But at what point do you think there's a danger of empathy starting to, if you carry on through how many people think of empathy, does it start to transfer to almost self-pity or apathy mm -hmm. in a way? Is that, 
do, do you see that as is that a risk for people for organizations totally um so there's a lot of work being done across many organizations now around making sure that you create psychologically safe environments and that you enable uh people to to show up in multiple different ways in the company and that's all really important and one of the keys to making that happen is leading with empathy and so for me leading with empathy is about listening carefully um being open-minded and curious about alternative points of view or alternative experiences, and then taking that and, and trying to ensure that people can rally together around a, a shared goal. If you get stuck with in the listening and sort of early stages of this where you're listening and understanding, but you then don't take all that stuff and try to help people rally past the event, the danger is that you get stuck in that cycle of, you know, empathy where it becomes almost a trap that it's hard to, to, to accelerate into action out of. And that's the, the key. And it's hard to do in something like this because it is unprecedented. And so no two people's experience has been the same across this. You don't even know some of our employees. I have made it my business to reach out to those people who have either been directly impacted by this virus or had some family member impacted and some of them are very seriously ill and when you connect with those people and it's very personal you realize wow um you know i shouldn't be complaining about the 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 sort of erratic nature of my zoom connection when there's some people who are actually struggling with you know very serious health issues so it runs the gamut. 11,000 people, we think of it as a small village and so in, or a small town almost. And so in that regard, the experiences people are having amongst our employee population vary quite considerably, but how each of them experiences it varies depending on you know, who they are as a person. So it's critical for every leader to have enough empathy to be able to listen, appreciate, and be curious about how someone else is experiencing the situation but to be careful to help them take that and reshape the story so that they're able to bring themselves out of it is really critical. And it's hard to do, but it's very important because particularly as we are six weeks, six to eight weeks into this situation, you don't want to minimize the challenge that any one person is experiencing, but you do have a responsibility to try to help the collective company emerge on the other side of this um and be you know okay and that's a, a pretty important part a pr pretty key dimension to your leadership um when you're helping a company navigate this well I'm, I'm going to ask you what emerging not just okay but i think in many ways stronger uh looks like for autodesk it's uh but when when you sort of talked about that 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 moving into that phase where maybe it's the trapped cycle. Many conversations that I've had with athletes have been anchored around, you can't treat this like an earthquake where you're just sitting under the desk and waiting for it to pass, you know, bury your head in their sand sort of thing. Or what I've been using with my triathletes, my, my pros is you don't want to tread water. You, yeah. you must still advance. And, uh, and, how, from an athletic sense, how do you come out of this, yes, fresh, yes, really healthy, but actually a better athlete? And so 
with that contents from the coach's lens, how how do you as a business and as individuals within your business, how do you emerge? What does success look like emerging from this? Yeah, so this is a conversation we've been having a lot um, in the last week or so. Um, so there's some practical things that we have to do to prepare ourselves to emerge from this in a healthy way. And it's literally down to how do we set up the office space so that you know, people are comfortable that they're safe going back. And that's complicated. Let me tell you, when you think about, you know, thousands of people taking public transport every day and arriving in the same building and you know, that you're sharing potentially with other tenants, other companies. And there's all sorts of interesting work being done on my team to help set up protocols for any one of us going back to the office that, you know, it, it's a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. So that's happening. But then there's the um, other stuff that I think you're touching on, which is how do you leverage this crisis to be something that can actually help you emerge in a different way on the other side and hopefully in a, in a better way, stronger. And so we've, you know, there's been some very difficult aspects to this and some, some stuff that we've learned that is surprising. And I think it's, it's down to actually doing, taking the time to do a, a sort of mini post-mortem on, on what you learned, both positive and negative, and, and making sure that you don't skip over that in the excitement to, to get out of this um, situation that we all definitely probably want to get out of sooner rather than later, um, that you don't waste that opportunity to reflect on some of the things that you did that you didn't realize you were capable of as a company or as a team or even as an individual. And leveraging those things to help you emerge more successfully on the other side. And so we're talking a lot about how do we create mechanisms to make sure that we're sharing those learnings and capturing them and developing um, them into certain muscles on the other side that we can tap into as we go forward here. And it's from very basic stuff to how we all work together to what has worked for our customers and how do they feel about the experience that they had with Autodesk during this time and how do we double down on those things, those strategies to make sure that we continue that momentum on the other side? Um, and then be ready for, you know, there's a widespread belief there'll be another second phase of this or some wave coming. And so we, we will now have some lessons that we can use to help us better prepare for that and put a, a, put a plan in place that we can then use to, to not only be prepared, be able to cope with it better um, and to continue to um, evolve as a company. We have a very strong point of view that if we're not evolving, um, we're in a danger zone as a company. And so evolution every day, even during, in fact, probably even more so during adverse times, it's critical for us to be successful. You know, oh, Autodesk is, is a, we're a 35-year-old company. Um, so it's, you know, in today's world, that's pretty old. That's a, a, it's a long um, cycle for our company. And every few years or so, it evolves into something new. And I think this is almost like a joke about it being very similar to a, you know, a 10, 11,000 person startup, because it's a very different company today than it was even four years ago. Um, and I think building momentum on some of the things that happen to you now so that you can help the company evolve the future as part of the DNA of the company. Um, and I hope that, that we can continue to do this on the other side of this situation. So what, what you just said there over the last couple of minutes, we should just remove 
record or um or post and just say listen to this athletes because it's exactly the same mindset uh, which so often i think both of us agree the lessons that can come from athletics to business or the lessons that can come from business to athletics go absolutely two ways but how do you emerge stronger you must always be growing and um and evolving Last question that I want to ask around this is, as we do navigate through this and come out of the other side, whatever it looks like, it's not going to look the same. We know that. At the start of the show, I asked you about the importance of fitness and health and resilience, you know, through all of the good habits. Do you think that this experience for individuals and for leaders is going to amplify the importance of that as a backbone of them being effective in the workplace? I I strongly believe that we're going to see a seismic shift. I hope we are because I watch our organization. Um, I think that when you're in your normal mode of working and, you know, people are commuting and dealing with all the different um, challenges that they have in everyday life, you can sometimes mask some of the the principles that make you successful as a human being like physical fitness or you know you can justify eating crappily or sleeping crappily because you've got some other pressing urgent thing to do what i think this situation has done for many of the people i work with i see it every day is reminded them of how important the fundamental stuff is um, and how critical it is for you to take care of the basics so that when you are hit with adversity, you're better able to cope with it. And, and Autodesk, we've had a lot of conversations about that and how this might be the moment that we have to double down on making sure our employees understand how critical it is for them to take care of their well-being and, um, and for us to support them to do that because that is what we're tapping into right now as a company to help us navigate this. And it's interesting, just this week, I was talking with my team about there are four, four elements of well-being that we consider critical. There's financial, so, you know, doing your job to get paid, and that helps you check off that box. But the three other pieces, which are, we continually look at as we've navigated these last few weeks, are community, physical health, um, and then purpose. Or for some people, that might be spiritual or whatever, but having something that that makes you feel like you're contributing or you're connected to. This crisis has emphasized how those four elements, um, how important they are and how you can't uh, emphasize one at the expense of the others. And very often people do, you get into the, you get lazy. You start thinking, well, you know, I just need to go to work so I can get paid. And you forget that if you're not firing on the other three cylinders, you're probably not going to be successful in the fourth. And so you making sure our definition of creating a great employee experience at Autodesk is by is about attending to all four elements so that we as a company have, you know, programs and infrastructure in place to help support our employees be awesome in all four. And what this crisis has emphasized to me is that the physical part and the community part are just immensely important and you cannot underestimate how much they help you become resilient um, as a human being 
Barry, can you get the uh, lawyers on the line? They def- Autodesk definitely stole that from Purple Patch. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's, uh, it, of course, it goes without saying. It's, uh, no, it's, uh, it, it, it is funny because I think that this whole element of life and corporate living in many ways was sort of emerging in there, but there is nothing like a forced amount of challenge to absolutely force in turn growth and change. Yeah. And, and I think that's actually important for, for athletes. It's, it's not comfortable. It's not pleasant necessarily, but there is amongst this terrible situation opportunity and, and there is an opportunity for growth. But a part of that is, is a decision to learn the lessons, as you say, and actually step forward and, and, and into that growth many ways yeah i think that's right and and you know there's a none of us would have le- ever wanted this to happen um and certainly haven't planned for it but it's here and we're gonna have to deal with it and i think you know back to to how you think about tackling you know i, I run my marathons well i'm gonna have to i gotta get to the finish line <laughs> so we're in it whether you like it or not so what are you going to do you have to figure out ways to navigate it and and deal with the stuff that you can and, and just try to um make it a better experience because um otherwise it's it's really not going to be a pleasant 26 miles right so and i use i think about that every day is here we are and as i talk to particularly my team so you know how do we create small moments every day to make this um, experience a be pleasant but also not waste it um, it is an opportunity if you look at it in a certain way and if you can find ways to tap into some of those opportunities by the way, not minimizing the significant impact it does really have on some people who it, it, it certainly cannot possibly view it as an opportunity. But for the vast majority of it is us, it's, um, it's okay to try to figure out ways to just use it to fuel strength and growth in, in other aspects of yourself that perhaps you don't take the time under, quote, normal conditions to pay attention to. Very wise and uh, and a really important acknowledgement as well. Well, Carmel, thank you. Um, beyond my my uh, silliness, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate taking the time, and it's there's so many lessons there. I feel like we could have uh, five episodes of this in a row and just yeah. keep going. And I'm I'm sure I'm going to ask you back in uh, to, to have another session. But I really appreciate your time today, and thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. Happy to do it. It's fun. Take care. All right, gang, and thank you, Carmel, so much. For you guys listening, I'm sure that you enjoyed it. Lots of insights and information there. Just before we go, I want you to pause. I want you to come back, and I want you to remember Carmel's story that she told right at the top of the show there about navigating the fear of swimming, actually going in step by step. There is perhaps no story better around going on the journey breaking things down into incremental steps, not looking too far ahead, even though you've got a vision and goal, and really being present on the now. That is a characteristic that helps create athlete performance, but it helps all of us right now navigate through the journey we're on right now. And so, 
I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, we dive in, we unpack this conversation, and we bring it through with a whole bunch of case studies around Purple Patch athletes and many other people that we know. And so the theme, Emerging Stronger. I look forward to next week, and thanks for listening today. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!